for the time when they join in our worship services. Um, and as, you, as they do that, please turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you need a Bible, I encourage you to grab one out in the foyer and bring it with you. I know there's a number of phone apps that you can use to follow along as well. Um, but just really encourage, especially a paper Bible you can write in or something you can take notes in. Because this is God's Word. We go section by section, knowing and discerning uh, God's will for us and the great works that He has done. In this world. So today we're going to be focusing on Genesis 6 and all the way through verse 22. Um, just by way of an of a introduction to it, you know, we, when we think about times of emergency, one of our, our first concerns, probably our first concern with it is, are the people that we love and that we care for safe? And are they making it safely through? Could be our family, could be our friends, um, could be uh, other church members. And we might even think about that recent snowstorm that we had a couple weeks ago. Uh, many of us made calls to others, um, just wondering, are you okay? Do you have power? How long have you been without power? Do you have what you need? And I, I was encouraged, as Fred Yarbrough mentioned a bit ago, of the stories of meals that were made, or people who helped dig others out, or provided housing for a night or a few nights when people didn't have electricity. You know, because we uh, want to care for our loved ones and those that we know in times of emergency. Now, after emergency passes, what do we often do? We often commit ourselves to being better prepared for next time, don't we? So a lot of us are asking, how do we be, be better prepared? Maybe even today, as we hear the snow is supposed to come, uh, we want to be ready for it. I have some friends after that last snowstorm, and I think they were out of um, electricity for about five days out in King George. And I was asking them about that, and they mentioned, well, you know, we have a 35-kilowatt generator. We have a 35-kilowatt generator available in our barn. It's a big generator. That's a big generator. It's enough to power your house. But they had two problems. And the first was is that it wasn't connected to anything. And the second was that it was out in the barn. It was too far to get on that day. You know, and so it doesn't do us any good to have something if we don't take advantage of it. You know, again, we, when we face with an emergency, we commit to making a better change for next time. Now, when we hit Je Genesis 6, chapter 6 here, we're aware that a judgment is coming. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. So there's an emergency situation that's brewing. God has promised that in the first eight verses. He said it's coming in 120 years. Now, we're going to look at today what that judgment is and if there's any escape from it. Now, you probably know the answer. You know, the judgment to come is a flood. And the escape, of course, is an ark that, God, that Noah is going to build to escape that judgment. Now, as we look at the passage today, though, you know, we're going to talk about, and we talked about last week, the seriousness of judgment. But as we look at this story, we remember that it is not the biggest story. As severe as that might seem, it is not the biggest thing that we see here, but we see the story of God's grace and the story of his salvation. Judgment is natural, but salvation and grace, that is supernatural. We're going to see that. Judgment is earned and deserved through sin and evil, but grace is unmerited and given as a gift. Judgment comes automatically, but God goes out of his way to show mercy. 
There was a judgment that was coming to earth. And Noah was part of a sinful human race. But as we saw in Genesis 6-8 last time, Noah found favor with the Lord. So God chooses to tell him of the danger and give him a way out. And so before we despair over the world, before we despair over our own lives and the mistakes that we've made, we need to remember God's grace. When floods are coming, when the storms are coming, when we're surrounded by water, we need a place to look, and God has given us a place to look. That's what today is about. God has provided a way of salvation. That's what the ark was to Noah, and that's what Jesus is to us. With a judgment to come, God has provided a way of deliverance. So let's look at Noah and the ark, what it teaches us about our salvation. So if you would please stand out of respect for God's word. We'll be reading Genesis 6, verses 9 through 22. This is the word of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 30 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark at its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded them. This is the word of God. May it his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Well, what does Noah and the ark teach us about salvation? I want to look at three things uh, today. The first thing that we see is the need of deliverance, the need of deliverance. And verses 9 through 13, uh, these cover topics which we really looked at last week, and, and I'm going to go through it quickly, but just remember the context of where we are. Verse 11 and 12, they describe the world that God was going to judge. Now the earth was corrupt, it says, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, the key word in this is corrupt, right? It's why? It's repeated three times. What does corrupt mean? Corrupt means, as the dictionary says, something that is in a state of decay, something that is rotten or putrid. You know, don't you just hate like squishy bananas, you know, like brown bananas? Ugh, you know, I mean, it's, you know, kind of corrupt, right? It's in a state of decay. And so the earth, you know, the earth was created full of life full of goodness, and something had gone rotten. It spoiled. 
And his his, his spoiling was seen in the violence, taking away that vibrancy that life was supposed to have. It wasn't the way that God created it to be. It became something else, something other than his intentions. It was corrupt. Now, Noah was different. We can look at verses 8 and 9. Again, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Because Noah found favor with God, God chose to make his plans known to Noah. This is what he says in verse 13. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now think if God were to tell you this. God were to tell you that he's going to destroy the earth. You know, what would you say to him? Um, God, why are you telling me this? Are you going to destroy me too? What can I do about it? Is there something I can fix? What about my family? What's going to happen? But God must be telling him for a reason. Because God has a solution for Noah to consider. Now when it comes to judgment, just like God alerted Noah, God has alerted us of a coming judgment. Revelation 20 tells us that a coming judgment is coming, but it's, it's not a judgment that is based on a flood or a comet or anything like that, but it is declared to be a lake of fire. Revelation 20, it gives a description of, of the great white throne judgment of God. And this is what it says, Then I saw the great white throne, and him who is seated on it, that's the Lord Jesus, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Everybody's there, standing before God, and the books are opened. Another book was opened, that's the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Everything that we've done, every thought that we've thought, everything that we've said, it's all exposed. It's all exposed there before God. And we have this statement, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, this is a description for all of us. God spoke to Noah. God speaks to us. All of us will experience this great white throne judgment. No one is exempt. The question is, what will happen as a result? Is your name written in that book of life? Because in that book is those for whom will be saved. In that book is the name of those for whom Jesus has died, who've received him as Lord and Savior. In all of our ways, we've fallen short of the glory of God. That first book of what we've done, it just brings shame. We need our names to be written in the other book to stand before that great white throne judgment. Now, because Noah at this time was walking with God, because he had ears to hear God's warning, uh, because of these things, uh, when God was about to do something, he spoke to Noah. Noah had received this favor. Here's the thing. If you walk with God, then you have a sense for what God is going to do in a world. You have a sense of a judgment to come, but also a salvation that's given. You have a sense of a purpose, of a calling. You'll be able to align yourself with God's purposes. Noah walked with God. That's why we read the Bible. It's why we pray. We don't do these things in order to change God. Uh, Noah didn't do a single thing to change God in this story. It's because prayer doesn't change God, but prayer changes us. It's a powerful way of changing us. Prayer helps us to align 
with the will of God. And that is something we desperately need, and it shows why we so desperately need to pray. We need alignment with God. Noah heard God. He was righteous, blameless. He walked with the Lord. May God make us like Noah to hear this will from him. So the first thing that we see is the need of deliverance. The second thing, and the thing we want to focus on today, is the way of deliverance. The way of deliverance. We see this starting in verse 14. Because God gives Noah his instructions. He's going to build an ark, right? He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. So it's a gigantic boat. Now, at this point, actually, that God had even told Noah that there's going to be a flood. That comes in a later verse. Um, there's some question whether that they'd actually ever seen rain on the earth at this point. I think the water, the earth was watered in a different way. I doubt that Noah had ever seen an ocean. Still, God tells him to build a giant ark, and Noah obeys. It's a reminder to us of our call to obey God, even if we don't know why. Even if sometimes we think we may know better. Now, what's his ark like? Uh, for starters, we know we notice it's built with gopher wood. Nobody knows what gopher wood is, and commentators believe that it's some sort of, of cypress, which is a very durable sort of wood, which would be able to withstand this um, storm and the water that it's going to take on. He's also supposed to put rooms in it. We notice that. Um, God will explain later as, as housing for these animals. Um, he's supposed to use pitch on it, which the pitch is going to help keep water out of the boat. You know, those things are, are incidental to a bigger picture of the ark because the bigger picture is that this thing is amazing. It's really an amazing thing, which Noah does here. And three things really jump out to me as I consider the ark. Uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is the grandeur of the ark, just how amazingly big this is. You realize that no bigger boat has been built on this earth from Noah until 1858. It took till 1858 to build a bigger boat than Noah's boat. It's gigantic. I mean, some of you have been to the Ark Encounter. Anybody here been to the Ark Encounter? I've not been to the Ark Encounter. I've heard that I need to go. If you're there, you know, you may have a sense of the size that's there where they have a full-size replica of it. Verses 15 and 16, they tell us of the size of it. Verse 15 says, this is God's instructions to Noah. It's probably a picture that God gave more instructions, but this is the, the foundation of it. God tells Noah, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Now, a cubit is about a foot and a half, so you're looking 450 feet long. It's about uh, one and a half football fields, if you think about it that way. Um, its breadth is 75 feet wide, and its height is 30 cubits. So again, 45 feet, or you think four to five-story building. You know, that's its height. He says, make a roof for the ark, uh, finish it to cubit above, set the door on the ark on its side, make it with lower, second, and third decks. So, you know, it's this like giant warehouse uh, that's floating with three uh, tall levels. It said the interior capacity of it is 1.4 million cubic feet. There's a deck area of 95,700 feet. And as it floated on the water, it would displace 43,000 tons of water. So it's gigantic. Um, I've heard, I, I compared it with a modern aircraft carrier, and it's about uh, half the size of one of the modern aircraft carriers. And it's especially large, considering they didn't have a lot of technology to build it back then. Now, the dimensions of it are so that it would actually float. 
There are other um, ancient narratives of, of floods that would cover the earth, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. But there's a, a comparison. There's something different about this account here is that the ark would actually float here. If you were to look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's the ark that's there is a cube, you know, and it wouldn't float. You know, most people think it's taken away, stolen from the story of Noah and changed and adapted. So it's gigantic. The, the grandeur of this thing is, is amazing. You could also notice, secondly, uh, the security of the ark. The security of the ark. Now, God hasn't told him why he needs to build an ark until he gets to verse 17. Verse 17, God says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So while a flood was God's way of bringing judgment on the earth, the ark then would be God's way of rescue uh, for Noah and his family. Now why save Noah? Verse 18 tells us it's because God plans to work with Noah for his earthly plans. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, he says. My covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now it's the big word here. Verse 18 is the word covenant. You can circle it. It's important. It's actually the first time that this very important word shows up inside the Bible. Now, I think before this, it's been hinted at. It's been implied that God works by covenant. But this is the first time that this appears. And it shows that God has plans, intentions in his relationship and working with Noah. It's a really significant word. It speaks of, of, of a future relationship. It speaks of being used for God's purposes. It, it speaks of a blessing in a future relationship. A covenant is, is an agreement between uh, two people who already know each other. It's a relationship that is formed on the basis of mutual love. And God, knowing Noah, walking with Noah, forms this long-lasting bond of mutual love. You see, when God looks on Noah, he's not uh, picking Noah because he had no other good options. In fact, actually, God had no good options. But he's picking Noah by his grace. He's picking Noah out of his love. God plans for him to have a central part in his plans for the world in the future. God's next steps in his great story are going to be through Noah and his family. And that's why he saves Noah and his sons and their wives. God works by covenant. If we want to understand the great, great themes, the overarching, the, the, the bent, the arc of the Bible, we, just, we, we see God's great covenant working its way out. And we see God working in smaller covenants along the way, especially in this covenant he has with Noah. God works by relationship. That's what it's saying. God works by relationship. So if, if you're, you're a Christian, you're here, God has a covenant with you. It means that you are part of his plan. Means that God is using you for his purposes. Means that God has a relationship with you. That he is your God and you are part of his people. Our God is a covenant God working with us in relationship. So we've seen his grandeur. We also see in security. We've seen the grandeur of the ark, the security of the ark. The third thing I see in this ark story is the promise of the ark. The promise of the ark is to bring blessing to the world. If you look at verses 19 through 21, it shows that the ark is a way of deliverance for all living creatures. The whole earth is going to be blessed by this ark, not just known as family. Verse 19, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark and keep them alive with you. 
They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come on to you. Why? To keep them alive. It's a blessing to the world. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So this is a picture of the way that God wanted to save Noah and his family of the judgment to come. You know, the ark is, uh, quite frankly, an amazing wonder. It's an amazing wonder of craftsmanship. It's an amazing wonder, uh, I'm anticipating, of God's grace and help to Noah. But as amazing as the ark is in its grandeur, security, and promise, it's really just a shadow which points forward to something even more amazing. And that's the salvation that God has provided in Jesus. That's because Jesus is the ark that God has given to us. Think of Jesus as an ark. An ark who has been given to us to deliver us from the wrath that's to come. We talked about that great white throne judgment of the lake of fire that's there. Well, where does deliverance from that come? It comes from Jesus. And the uniqueness of the ark that we might see in its size, in its design, in how amazing it is in the ancient times that it was created, it reminds us even more of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did. Let's remember what the Bible says about him, how it talks about him as Savior. And you could go so many places inside of it. I, I chose just to look at Colossians 1. So if you have a Bible and you're following along, I'd actually encourage you to turn to Colossians 1. I'll spend a couple minutes here. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, because it's one of those passages which just shows forth, you know, what is this ark, the ark that we call Jesus, the ark of Jesus Christ? Who is he and what has he done? Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of God. That's, that's who he is. If, if you want to know what God is like in his perfection, you look at him. That's why John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was God, uh, in, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? If you want to know the, the, what God looks like, the word of God, you look at Jesus. The next thing we see in verse 16 is his role as creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And notice he's not just creator for our sake or for creation's sake, but he's creator for his sake. All things point back to him and for his glory. Verse 17, what's next there? He's before all things, he's eternal. We see in him all things hold together. He's a sovereign provider. As if he turns his attention away, if he were to, to stop constantly providing, is it, everything would be gone, everything would be lost. But he constantly provides. And then next, to verse 18, it says, he is the head of the body, the church. He saves his church. He connects his church. He guides his church. He directs his church. He sends us on his mission. He sends us forth in worship and in love and in good deeds. To make the gospel known around the world. He's the head who saves. Is there still more to say? Well, there is still more to say. He shows he's the center point of life. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He was the first, he was not necessarily the first to ever rise from the dead in the Bible, but his resurrection is the first to show us that we too, through faith in him, can be resurrected to newness of life. 
As Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, as you believe in him, you'll be resurrected to eternal life. It says that in everything, he might be preeminent. And who is he? Who is this one? Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is God who has come into the world. And then for all what? Verse 19 goes on to say, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is this image of God? What is this creator? What is this eternal? Uh, what is this head? What did this, this, this beginning, the firstborn, do? He came to die on a cross to make peace between you and God. That ark of gopher wood would save Noah and it would save his family from the great flood, but it would not save Noah from the fire of hell. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he saved his people from the wrath of God and he saved his people from the judgment to come. Even Noah, he's a savior in that way. And so if there's one thing I want you to come away with today, it's amazement at Jesus. Amazement at his uniqueness. You can look at the bulletin. I, I put a few quotes there. It's there. Because you know, we want to keep coming back to Jesus, this, this ark that God has provided. Robert Murray McShane says, For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. If you think you're tuned pretty well, look at Christ. We need 10 looks at him to remind us. If you think you're doing terrible, there's, there, there's, there's, nothing, um, you know, there's nothing going on with you. God is done with you. You look to Christ. Take 10 looks at him and find hope. John Newton said, one single view of Christ will do more good than pouring over your own wounds for a month. How often do we pour over depressingly at our mistakes or our failures or what's going wrong instead of pointing and looking constantly to Christ? You know, be amazed at Jesus' uniqueness. Be amazed at his power. Being amazed at his accomplishments. One of the best ways to do this, especially if we're not familiar, is just reading the New Testament through. We start in Matthew, one chapter at a time, and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one chapter at a time, one chapter a day, and just see who was this Savior? Be amazed at who he is and what he does. If you want to be amazed, uh, join our Christianity Explored class. Again, just through the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? What, is he, what, did, what did he do? Be amazed. It's because the world doesn't think highly of Jesus. I mean, the world likes to think highly of ourselves. Wants to think highly of humanity. Things through our knowledge or through our goodness that will ascend to greater things. Even, the, even, even us, us here, that we think if just we just do things right, then my life will be okay. My life will be great. We don't think as highly of Christ as we should. The truth is you'll never get on the ark unless you believe that it can truly save you. And unless you see that you need to be saved. And unless you see that this ark is secure, that it is good, that it is seaworthy, that it will keep the water out, that it can withstand the storms of life, you, you won't get on. But if you know those things, and you know the danger you're in, and you know it will save you, then you get on. And Jesus does that. The world likes to think of Jesus as just a great moral teacher, a moral example but he's more than that. In fact, the Bible gives us no allowance for leaving just Jesus as a moral teacher. 
It's talking about him as an ark who saves us from the wrath of God, which is to come. We can look at 1 Timothy 1.17. Who is this Jesus? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But not only do we look at his glory, we look at his love. If you look in your Bible, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Matthew 10, 28, we see that a description of Jesus goes beyond just his glory, but to his love. Look at how Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a great book out recently. It's called Deeper, or another book by the same author called uh, Gentle and Lowly. It's written by Dane Ortland. But here's what he writes about Jesus on the basis of Matthew chapter 11. He says, Jesus is infinitely tender. He's the most open and accessible, the most peaceful and accommodating person in the universe. He's the gentlest, least abrasive person you will ever experience. Infinite strength, infinite meekness. Dazzlingly, dazzlingly resplendent, endlessly calm. If you had only a few words to define who Jesus is, what would you say? In the one place where he himself tells us his own heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And remember that the heart in the biblical terms is not nearly our emotions, but the innermost animating center of what we do. Our deepest loves and desires and ambitions pour out of our hearts. And when Jesus opens himself up and tells us of the the fountain, the engine, the throbbing core of all that he does, he says that deeper than anything else, he is gentle and lowly. Peer down in the deepest recesses of Jesus Christ, and there you will find gentleness and lowliness. Now that's a snapshot of Jesus. He's also our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king, he's our Lord, he's our Messiah. He came down to conquer death, and he will come back in conquering glory. He's already conquered uh, the world, sin, and the devil. He is the scapegoat who takes our sins far away. He is the ark, and he is the ark who saves. And as he died upon that cross, all of God's wrath was poured out on him. Jesus took it all. He took the wrath of God for sin, the sin that, that you deserve, the sin that, that, that I owed. He took it all, and then he, after his death, rose from the dead. He floats. He's secure. He died and rose again. He conquered death. And he's the ark that millions and millions, even billions probably, of people have trusted in as their ark of salvation, the ark that delivers them safely to, to their home in heaven through judgment. And that's why, knowing his love and salvation, So many have committed their lives to following him as no other commander has ever done or accomplished. The French general and emperor Napoleon spoke about him. Napoleon recognized his own limits as a leader and the seemingly limitless influence of Jesus. This is what Napoleon said. He said, you speak of Caesar, Alexander, of their conquests, of their enthusiasm they enkindled in the hearts of their soldiers, But can you conceive of a dead man making a request with an army, faithful and entirely devoted to his memory? My army has forgotten me while living. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we've all founded empires. But on what did we rest? 
the creations of our genius upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire in love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. I have so inspired multitudes that they would die for me. But after all, my presence was necessary. The lighting of my eye, my voice, a word for me. Then the sacred fire was kindled in their hearts. But now that I'm in prison, in St. Helena, alone, chained upon this rock, who fights and wins empires for me? What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal reign of Christ, who is proclaimed, loved, adored, and whose reign is extending over all the earth. He's the ark. Many have gotten on. Many are following his mission because they know life through the judgment of God. That's the amazement of Jesus. Be amazed at the ark of Noah. Go to the ark encounter in Kentucky. Be fascinated with the way that Jesus, or the way that Noah put so many animals on that ark, but never lose sight of the true ark of God, the gift of Jesus Christ who brings us through the judgment to come. He's a solid and sure deliverance. Well, there's a third thing. We'll touch on this briefly. It's only one verse. Verse 22. What did Noah do with these instructions? Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He heard this word from God to build this. And he did. It took a long time. I think he had 120 years basically to build it based on verses 1 through 8. He acted despite the unbelief of the world around him. He did it despite the, the wickedness and the violence that surrounded him. He did it despite the ridicule that he would received. He acted by faith. He hadn't seen rain, and there was no evidence of judgment. There was a long time to come. Hebrews 11 speaks about Noah. Verse 7, Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, why did he build? What did he have? He had God's word. He had God's promise. And that was enough to sustain him for 120 years. I mean, I don't know about you, but I sometimes can't even make it a week without doing the things I got to do. And he made it 120 years, trusting in God's promise and persevering by God's grace. That's a long obedience in the same direction. You have that same thing. I have the same thing. A word that comes from God. There's a promise of judgment. There is a way of salvation. And this way of salvation, you don't even have to build. Right? He had to build it for 120 years. And God gives you the ark of Jesus Christ without you doing a single thing. What remains? Will you take it? Will you take the way? Now, if you think about the ark and about its dimensions, it looks and it's shaped a lot like a coffin. And it probably is an appropriate illustration. Even Noah and his family would experience a much different life after the flood. It would be almost as if they got on this coffin, dying and being born again to a new world. It's a telling thing that to be saved, Noah would have to enter something shaped like a coffin. He would have to take on death. Jesus, in the same way, said that unless we take up our cross and follow him, we cannot be his disciples. We have to be willing to give up our, our love of this world and to live instead for the glory and the grace of God. I mean, it's a call to a new way of life. But in entering that ark, they got off the ark eventually. 
And as Jesus entered the coffin of his own death, he was resurrected. He was resurrected to a greater life, to a glorified life. And so to we, as we enter Christ, take him our cross, following him wherever he goes, we know that we find true life, real life, in following him. Even if you're young, if death seems far away, will you accept the salvation that God has given? Even if you're ridiculed for your faith, even if it looks so good and so easy to live in the world, will you accept this salvation through Jesus Christ? Because you know the consequences are great. This is eternity. And God's word to you is to get on the ark. And God's word to the world is get on the ark. Now, will they? I mean, it's doubtful that many will to their own destruction. But God's grace is seen in the gift of sight and our ability to get on. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and so are we. We testify the goodness of God's Son, the safety of the ark, and the, from the judgment that's to come. That's the way of salvation that God has provided. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, just like Noah, we have a warning of judgment, and just like Noah, God, you've provided a way of escape. You've given us Jesus Christ, our precious, stable, grand ark. What a gift that you've given to us in him. And Father, you've delivered us through your wrath, and you've delivered us safely, and you will deliver us safely to our final home. You have given us, in him, eternal life. Father, give us the courage to follow after him. Take us the courage to get on that boat, to stay on that boat. Father, help us to remember of everything that goes around and the safety and deliverance that he is and walking with him. God, as we have life, may we tell others of the life that they also may have. Father, for the saving of our neighbors, our loved ones, our friends, our family, to eternal life as well. Escape the wrath of God. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.